Welcome back to Inside Asia. At this very moment, representatives from some 197 nations have arrived in Glasgow, Scotland to discuss prospects for net zero carbon emissions by mid-century. The so-called COP26 gathering represents a pivotal moment and a real test of the world's ability to cooperate in the face of climate risk. The consequences of doing nothing are severe. Wild swings in climate patterns causing forest fires in the US and floods in Europe all point to one thing. And that is, unless we act and act now, the world will soon become a far less hospitable place. I'm talking about the melting glaciers, rising sea levels, declining fish populations, widespread drought, and mass migration of people fleeing famine and pestilence. Okay, hold on, that's a bit too dark. But if this Old Testament imagery moves you even a little, it's time to take up the cause and pressure those that can make a difference to make a difference. Asia is at the epicenter of this ecological sea change, and here to talk about it is Cindy Hook, CEO of Deloitte Asia Pacific. Cindy and her colleagues have recently released a new report entitled Asia Pacific's Turning Point, How Climate Action Can Drive Our Economic Future. It's a provocative piece of research that quantifies the risks the region faces in doing nothing to counter the impending effects of climate change. Before we go there, a few words about our sponsor, Quilt AI a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now, my conversation with Cindy. Cindy Hook, uh, welcome to Inside Asia. Thanks for spending time this morning. Great to see you, Steve, and thanks for having me. We are um, both living and working in Asia Pacific, and uh, there are some serious stakes um, that are being brought forward, and it's really around climate. And as we run up to COP26, there's discussions about Southeast Asia, Asia at large, and its contribution to decarbonization. Uh, you and, and Deloitte have recently generated a report um, really looking at that and taking a hard look at some of the of what what is at stake. Could you could you just open and, and in that opening part of the report, you say the global fight against climate change will be won or lost in Asia Pacific. What's the basis of this statement? Well, I, I believe that statement uh, to be true. And and. Um... I think the science and the, the uh, economic modeling proves that out. And it comes down to Asia. Uh, first of all, our demographic, you know, more than half the world's population here. Uh, current emissions are the largest out of this region. Um, and where we sit, uh, you know, on the equator and the implications it has here. And then a lot of vulnerable people. So, uh, I think people have long known that the downside of doing nothing about climate change will have an inordinate impact in Asia. The report tries to put the flip side of that forward, which is actually there's also tremendous economic upside for Asia if we act now in a coordinated fashion. Uh, we can actually drive economic growth. Uh, so it's, it's trying to turn what was historically a conversation of cost and incompatibility of addressing climate change and uh, you know, continuing uh, to grow the economies 
uh, in these uh, emerging markets. Uh, and so actually they are compatible. And you hit on a key word, coordinated, coordinated effort. Uh, it feels to me like this is where the rub is that um, you've got lots of individual uh, countries and making their declarations uh, all at different levels, but collectively, unless there's cooperation and coordination, it's going to be very difficult to get there. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there has to be cooperation across borders without a doubt. This is truly a global problem. We're, we're, we're facing two um, crises that can only be solved with global coordination, the pandemic and climate. Uh, and hopefully, um, both of these things are going to teach us to work together on the other. Um, but it's also a matter of working together. It's not just a government problem. It's not just a business problem. It's not just an individual problem. It, it's collective action that is needed and needed now. Um, and, you know, the, the time for just looking to someone else to solve the problem uh, needs to end. We all need to act. I, I mean, it's a, it's a red flag moment. I mean, hearing you say that the implications of inaction are so significant that it's not even an option to do nothing. Um, establishing these net zero goals are, are not just a good idea. They're an, an imperative. I, 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 don't, I don't know, um, you know, this, when we look at these types of reports and research, you know, you can put the numbers forward. You can make a case. You can demonstrate financially, economically what's at stake. Yet there seems to be this, again, continued day-to-day -day or near-term resistance. Um, the commitments out of Southeast Asia specifically are not coming as quickly as you would expect. Um, is this a matter of politics getting in the way of just good business sense? I think absolutely. I, and I, I won't say it's politics. It's the complexity of the challenge combined with the politics. Um, but, you know, I am a bit hopeful because, uh, you know, 35 year career, I've been working in Asia for over a decade. And um, I think there has been a turning point in terms of the narrative around climate and how serious we need to take it. Um, you know, and, and one of the more hopeful things is when I talk to the prof many professionals we have in Deloitte that work in this area that are passionate about it, that have worked in the, the climate space for 20 years. And what they're saying is, it's so different today, even from 18 to 24 months ago, where before they were trying to fight to get a voice and to be relevant, they're now getting called into the C-suite and into uh, governments to try to help solve the problem. So I do think we're, we're feeling a change, and I think that's being driven by stakeholders, you know, mm -hmm. citizens, employees, consumers are demanding more. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can hear it from all fronts. But then just to your earlier point, transitioning is not easy. I mean, take the large uh, oil and gas interests, uh, transitioning your assets out from oil and gas and into renewable um, is a enormously time-consuming and capital-intensive effort. I, I guess it's the low-hanging fruit. And of course, we all look, think of fossil fuels, but of course, the contribution from, from agriculture is quite significant as well. And Asia-Pacific is a real breadbasket um, for, for much of the rest of the world. So combined, and then of course, the forests, you know, and deforestation and some of the, the, the carbon release that's happening through um, some of the deforestation, you roll that all up. And it is a significant contribution. Um, and, and a lot of governments, I think, are then, to your earlier point, struggling with COVID, managing that, tax revenues are down, available investment dollars are down. Who's going to take this on? 
Where does the rubber hit the road with this? I, I think, it, again, it has to be a coordinated effort. And a, a big part of the solution is going to be technology. And that's why I'm hopeful about Asia. Many of the technologies that we're going to need to solve the problem are being developed and scaled in Asia from solar panels and the, the production of those significant in this region in China, green hydrogen, Korea, a leader in that. India, biggest uh, wind farms in the world uh, are in India. So I think Asia's got the ability to bring in some of the technologies that are going to be needed to solve this. Another point I'll make, you know, you point out the, the oil and gas companies and the mining companies and agriculture. I often get asked the question by our young people, Cindy, why is Deloitte working with those companies? They are bad for the environment. We should just walk away from them. The problem is if we walk away, if everybody walks away from those companies, we don't work in a coordinated effort. And certainly the transition is going to need the oil and gas companies. It's going to need the mining companies and others to find new solutions and transition their businesses and their models. And when I talk to executives from the big uh, oil and gas companies and mining companies, you'd be amazed at the things that they're actually seeking to do in the transition. Some of the numbers in your report are, are startling. I mean, you, you, you mentioned uh, that climate inaction would cost Asia Pacific's economies $96 trillion, trillion dollars by 2070. Um, and and you, you also then juxtapose that with strong climate action, delivering $47 trillion in Asia Pacific ec economies by 2070. In other words, you know, you, you could offset and not, it's not just a matter of just reducing. There's actually an opportunity to generate new uh, businesses and new economic activity in ways that simply aren't haven't been realized because the transition hasn't actually started. Could you talk about that a little bit? What is what does that really entail? Yeah, Steve, you're exactly right in how if you've read that. I think there's been a lot of discussion on the cost of the transition and can we afford it. Well, the report intends to say we can't afford not to because it models the impacts of doing nothing. And what was startling to me when I read our economists' work was assume that we do nothing and temperatures rise beyond the, the, the 1.5 degree target. They go up 3% or 3 degrees. Um, what I didn't understand that the report models is the economic damage that that heat stress will have on productivity. So a lot of people, when it's just that much warmer, doesn't seem like much, but it'll take productivity of people and machines and systems down, which has an economic cost. And then you're exactly right. The flip side is we haven't really modeled what are the possibilities to drive economic growth if we do take action, invest in technologies. And, and another key point I would make we don't always think about the cost of addressing the increasing numbers of disasters, whether it's fires or floods or typhoons. When those things happen, governments have to put a lot of energy and a lot of resources into fixing up from that. That mm. has a cost. And if you didn't have to do that, you could divert those resources and invest the same dollars in new technologies, in new growth opportunities. Uh, so, so that gets modeled in the report as well. 
So both direct and indirect consequences are, are in the report. It's not just a straight line. You know, if we do, uh, if from, from an industrial perspective, you're looking at, as you say, the consequences of climate change, the impact on societies, governments, uh, health of people. Um, that's, that's a pretty comprehensive view, isn't it? You've taken into consideration a lot of requirements. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you see this all the time, um, even in the United States, when it came to some of the floods and some of the other things, none of this was actually accounted for. And the time it takes to restore versus you know, being able to accelerate past that um, is something which catches a lot of organizations off guard. You're, you're exactly right. And that was a big eye-opener for me in the report. And I think a lot of people think that the cost of the transition is a direct incremental investment. But businesses and governments are investing trillions of dollars every day. It's a matter of how you invest it. Hmm. And can you invest differently, um, you know, take dollars, divert them from one set of actions into another that have different consequences in the, in the long run. And the report is saying we have to make different decisions starting today, mm. or we're really going to regret it. Or our children are going to be the ones that pay the price and grandchildren. And, and they're structural as well. I, I think at one point in your report, it says to move forward, we must reimagine, reinvent, and redesign how our businesses and economies operate and many aspects of our day-to-day lives. And, and it does beg the question, does our economic foundational model need to change? Our, our, our commitment to GDP growth at all costs, for instance, is something which in the circular economy would suggest that's unsustainable. We're not bringing into consideration the externalities of what we take out of the environment, take out of the planet. Um, and therefore, if we don't account for that, we really aren't giving ourselves a full view on what's at stake. Exactly. And I think we've been conditioned because since the Industrial Revolution, GDP has risen, um, you know, three, four, five percent a year, almost consistently for 100 years. But if you map the growth in emissions, it's almost in parallel to economic growth. Mm. So you could make the assumption that that continues on forever. But it doesn't, because we are at that turning point where the impact of the rising emissions is going to bend the curve down on GDP growth pretty quickly. So we've got to break our, our thought that we, this just can go on indefinitely. It can't. So what does this suggest to you, Cindy? Is, is it that we have to um, reevaluate and perhaps reassess what we need? In other words, is it a fundamental rethinking about our consumer-based model? Um, is it a redistribution of wealth? Is it recalibrating on, you know, because for, we've been so successful for the last 50 years on lifting people out of poverty. I think more people today live out of poverty than in poverty, which is a first. But to sustain that and get the rest out, um, you have to have GDP growth at something north of 3% or 4% is what I've told. Uh, how in the world can we do that um, while also trying to basically beat down carbon emissions? This is the crux of the challenge. <laughs> and uh, I am, I mean, I lead a, a leading consultancy and technology firm, and I believe technology has to be a huge part of the solution. And we've got to be investing in new technologies that enable us to do both. And if we do that together, and that will take a very coordinated effort 
uh, between government and policymakers, businesses to invest. Um, what I think and why I'm hope I'm more hopeful than I've been in my lifetime that the narrative actually sounds different. And I think that another key point is we all have to do something. It would be easy for Deloitte, okay? We're not a big emitter. We don't manufacture anything. Um, our biggest carbon footprint is our travel because we travel to see clients. Well, we can fundamentally change that right here, right now out of the pandemic. So I, I think in a weird sort of way, the disruption caused by the pandemic has opened our minds that you know, that's just a simple, one simple example, but, but there'd be hundreds of thousands of examples of how we could do things we never thought possible. And how do we take those learnings uh, and apply them to thinking about this climate challenge in a very different way about what's possible and how quickly we could turn the dial? You know, many of the, uh, the, the country commitments uh, to reduce or to, to move towards net zero, um, they fluctuate across the world. And developing markets have argued uh, it's really not our problem. You caused it. China, U.S., developing markets, you know, we, we didn't even get a chance. Um, and now you're asking us to basically make sacrifices. Um, is that really fair or equitable? Um, and, and yet, if, if everybody doesn't participate on this to some degree, demonstrating some willingness to do their part, as you're pointing out, it, it, it will fail. I, I think, you know, the whispering in corridors is that, you know, the analysis is all well and good, but it's the political will at the end of the day, which is going to make the difference. Um, and with so much um, tension, Globally, geopolitically, even domestically, you know, uh, when in, in burgeoning democracies, it's a short-term game politics, and yet the the climate change discussion is a long-term strategy. How did the two meet in the middle? What is the linchpin in order for this to actually turn in a way that you see as meaningful? I think a big part of that has to be the will of the people using their power and their might as consumers, as investors, as voters, uh, as citizens to say, this is the time because it is that right. I think, I don't know that it, people as an, you think as an individual, I can't have an impact here. Well, actually every individual needs to have an impact. And I think your influence through those means are, are strong and, and powerful. And I do think I mean, it's some of the governments uh, I look at are frustrating. I think they could do more and they could go further. Hopefully we'll see more movement out of COP26. Um, but there are encouraging signs, you know, China by 2060 commitment. And they just came out and said, we're not going to invest in coal-fired um, plants anywhere outside of China. So yeah. maybe not as far as we want to go yet, but there is a movement in the right direction. And to your point, I do think the developed economies have to more than step up here. Mm. Um, you know, the United States included. The United States was the leading emitter for the better part of the last century. Uh, mm. So a big part of this problem was caused there. And um, not only get their own house in order, but, uh, you know, support the more emerging um, societies around the world and doing the same uh, mm -hmm. is really, really important. And I, you know, personally, I think we should put a price on carbon so people invest behind it. Right. Um, Right. Well, there's there's the opportunity, right? Uh, new a asset and economic models, new financial instruments 
Um, green bonds, of course, are quite popular, but there are other ideas, which is investing in projects that will generate carbon credits and then selling the credits and then creating a whole you know, secondary market against that, um, which then incentivize people to think about um, you know, our natural resources in a different way. Are, are you starting to see any of these opportunities bud across this region where actually much of the carbon emission takes place? Yeah, I, I am. And I think, you know, the, the carbon uh, financing and bonds, you're starting to see a huge market for that. They have created in Singapore, oh, um, what's called Climate X, uh, you know, an exchange for carbon. That's a really encouraging sign. Um, and I think you're seeing some of the leading companies in the world. I just caught up with the head of Google Cloud um, in Asia Pacific. And what Google is doing, they're not trying to get to net zero, they're trying to get themselves to zero and beyond. So I do think there is a lot of good starting to happen and a lot of momentum. Uh, but you know, so much more to be done. You do sound hopeful. And, and this gives me hope, Cindy. I mean, it, it's, you, yeah, I think there, there are so many uh, opportunities for us to get mired in the challenges that exist and sometimes just to lift our heads and see past this into the possibilities. It, it's really hope as a generator uh, is something which, which I think uh, a lot of people are banking on right now. Would you agree? Uh, totally. And if yeah. nobody's going to change if there's no hope, hmm. Right. If it's a lost cause, we might as well just go on doing what we're doing until it all comes to some sort of ugly end. But if there's hope, that is what causes you to act. So I think we do have to paint a picture of hope and possibility, but it comes with the need for all of us to act immediately. Well, thanks to you and thanks to Deloitte for doing this work and generating this report. And we'll get it out on the podcast to our listeners um, and, and give them the link so they can actually look at the report itself. Thanks for taking time out. Yeah, really appreciate it. And thanks for giving the report profile and, and this important topic, more importantly. That was my conversation with Cindy Hook, CEO of Deloitte Asia Pacific. As our conversation suggests, we are rapidly moving towards a point of no return. The question is, will it be a turning or a tipping point? The region has much to lose and everything to gain in leaning into policies and investments that preserve core ecological systems upon which more than 3 billion people depend. Serving as the world's high-polluting manufacturing base is not a sustainable option. Investing in renewable energy, sustainable farming, and nature-based industries is the alternative. But to do this, governments in the region must first extract themselves from nepotistic relationships with wealthy families that profit from resource-destroying industries. Incentivizing a new generation of innovators and disruptors that take environment, social, and governance, or ESG guidelines seriously is the next best step. At the end of the day, it's inherent on all of us to rethink and reframe the underlying economic model that powers industries that range from fossil fuels to mining to palm oil. All these activities feed our insatiable appetite for consumer products. And only through purchase of these goods do we drive GDP growth, the hallmark of the global free market enterprise system. Is it time to think differently about the economic underpinning of our current ecological crisis? The economist and author of Donut Economics, Kate Rayworth, said it best by asking, what if we started economics not with its long-established theories, but with humanity's long-term goals, and then sought out the economic thinking that would enable us to achieve them? What eludes us, I believe, is the ability to think outside the box on this and to imagine what an alternative existence might look like.
What if we were able to agree as a species that in the interest of self-preservation, we should reprioritize what is most essential? What if we threw out the bumper sticker that read, whoever dies with the most stuff wins, and replaced it with, save the earth, there's no planet B? What would the world look like 10 years from now? I encourage all of us to think differently. Here's one scenario, a six-step plan, one that imagines a future within the limitations of what our planet can offer. Step one, reverse urbanization. To some degree, the global pandemic has been a training camp for remote work. With a work-from-anywhere mentality, once high-paying urban-centric roles can now be farmed out for less to workers living in more remote, lower-cost centers. With the noted exception of construction or manufacturing jobs, a distributed workforce helps solve the problem of wage inflation and offers flexibility to families that need to live more on what they earn versus on what they borrow. Step two, prepare for small town living, where once again, we begin to recapture what it means to be part of a more interdependent community system. In a country like the U.S., it would be a kind of de-Walmartification where local retailers return to providing goods and services to their communities at reasonable rates. Step three, ensure cheap and affordable internet access for all and focus on green supply chains to optimize the way goods are moved and managed. Naysayers will say only through warehouse and retail centralization can you ensure the lowest prices. But maybe on some goods, prices should rise to better reflect the real costs of extraction and environmental damage as incurred in their production. This includes the decisions we make around energy consumption as well. Step four, incentivize sustainable living choices. This means growing thousands of creative commons communities throughout the world and encouraging the sharing of products and services that don't need to be individually owned and controlled, but might instead be collectively acquired and shared. Step five, revision taxes so that governments encourage sustainable choices and discourage conspicuous consumption. It puts the onus back on individuals to behave in a way that benefits the greater community. Step six, revel in the results. Watch as communities begin to support one another versus compete. See carbon emissions begin to level off then fall. Witness an explosion in community and nature-based business models that pan out across the economic landscape. I know what you're thinking. Sounds like socialism, right? But it's not. It's a system that leverages the best of capitalism and its market mechanisms, but reframes the rights of the individual in relation to the rights of the planet and all those who depend upon its bounty. Have I oversimplified a future world? Of course I have. Are there dozens of substeps in between? Indeed there are. And am I guilty of utopian thinking? Guilty as charged. It comes down to this. If we are to wrest ourselves from the grips of a GDP growth addiction, we need to place on mute the neoliberal rhetoric that tells us to consume more and ask ourselves, what do we all actually need in order to live meaningful, equitable, and dignified lives? Honestly, how many unique brands and varieties of breakfast cereal do we actually need? Today's version of capitalism suggests one should have as many choices as one would like. Tomorrow's version says, would you sacrifice 80 of the 100 cereals on offer if it meant preserving a better way of life for everyone on the planet? To bring this all back around to my conversation with Cindy and the prospect of an Asia-Pacific turning point, it speaks to the will and determination of consumers, corporations, governments, and investors to fundamentally challenge the system that has brought us to the brink of both untold economic wealth and the prospect of ecological collapse. 
But here's the point. It won't matter how rich or comfortable you are when the day of reckoning comes. A brink is still a brink. And unless you grow wings or have a gravity-defying escape plan, that turning point will look a lot more like a tipping point, and then what? So as our global leaders gather in Scotland this week and next to parade their plans and how to reduce carbon emissions, see it not as a solution unto itself, but rather just one determined step on the road to a better, more sustainable, and more equitable future. The rest is up to us. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. And if you haven't checked out our new website, please do. There are over 180 episodes to choose from, all searchable and covering a range of topics from corporate purpose and sustainability to future tech, future economy, geopolitics, and more. Each episode posting is accompanied by our weekly newsletter. So if you prefer reading to listening, now you can. Our newsletter includes links to other valuable resources and insights and references earlier episodes on related topics as well. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening. Music